This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. Good morning at home. If you're listening to this retrospectively, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you, good night, wherever you're doing. Uh, you know, you can always watch our services online at any time throughout the week, night or day, uh, and also follow our podcast as well which is basically everything that we deliver on a Sunday in a podcast. So you can listen to that. That's actually distinct from the Well With My Soul podcast. And uh, just uh, an encouragement from me, if you uh, would uh, subscribe to that podcast, leave us a review, that would be so helpful, as uh, Sarah said, just in getting that connection with people beyond our network here um, because we believe there's real life in the gospel of Jesus to make a difference in people's lives. So do it for that reason if you uh, can think of no other. Well, um, my name's Owen, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at Seven. It's great to be able to share with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me speak. Um, I'm going to be sharing with you this morning from our box set series, Questioning Our Assumptions. And uh, I don't know about you, but I think COVID, the COVID crisis is probably the biggest crisis that I've ever lived through. Would you say the same? Is it, I, don't, I can't think of anything else that has lasted so long and had such an impact on my life. In fact, some would say that it is the biggest crisis that any of us have actually faced, uh, because very few of us nowadays have lived through uh, the Second World War, which probably, for, for British people, would be the most significant event uh, that would compare with this. Um, and, uh, and of course, um, for, for many of us who are used to connecting as, as part of a church, and, and of course there are churches all across the nation uh, that have not been able to meet together on a Sunday. Actually, COVID has actually been a real time of reflection. It's been a moment where we've actually been asking ourselves the questions that perhaps we've never had time to ask ourselves before. And they've been troubling. They've been unsettling, and they have certainly for me. And I don't mind you, but this morning I, I really was moved emotionally as we were worshipping, as we were singing there. I know it's, it's not for everyone. I know singing worship songs doesn't do that for everyone. But for me, I was just moved emotionally, uh, just connecting with God, connecting with the Holy Spirit, connecting with this source of unconditional love in my life. And, and for me, I sometimes struggle to reconcile that with some of the questions I have about faith, uh, questions about Christianity, questions about belief and religion. And uh, for me, uh, that kind of tension between my heart to really connect with God in a really powerful, emotional way, um, wanting to experience the unconditional love of God, moved by the, by the gospel of Jesus, which is a story of unconditional love. And yet also having loads of questions about, about religion, faith and Christianity, about the history of church, about the way in which churches and church leaders and, and, and church movements, frankly, have, have affected our world. And I don't know about you, but those sorts of tensions kind of, they, I have to hold them. I just have to hold them. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, I want, I want to say to you this morning that if you're in that place, maybe you too feel like that, that, that there, is, there is hope. Uh, this, this sort of trend of evangelicalism has always been on understanding the Bible in the context in which it was originally written. And the reality is, is that nowadays we have universities, uh, we have academic theological colleges with hundreds and thousands of theologians and scholars doing loads and loads of work to understand the Bible better. Not just in the context of theology, but also in the context of history, archaeology, anthropology. So many different disciplines that contribute to our understanding of what the world was like when the Bible was written. Because we forget sometimes that the Bible was written hundreds, thousands of years ago. And, and we pick it up and we expect to read it like, like it's kind of a, a handbook for life. And yet in there is thousands of years of history, 
all written in a context very different from our own. So our passion as an evangelical church is to understand the Bible in which it was originally written. And this box set is about questioning our assumptions. It's about understanding the Bible in the context in which it was originally written. And uh, I really want to encourage you to question your faith, question your understanding of the Bible, because that's what people have done right through history in order to apply it appropriately to our lives. Because when we apply the Bible um, to our lives without understanding the context in which it was written, unfortunately, we sometimes get into a bit of a mess and we end up having beliefs and worldviews that really are inconsistent with what the Bible is actually saying in the context in which it was written. See, many Christians have a Sunday school faith. And today's, uh, today's uh, episode is called Sunday School 2.0. Okay, we're going to re-look at some of the things that we've learned through our Sunday school experiences. Now, you may not have been to a Sunday school, but I can tell you that you have, you've definitely heard and received some of the stuff that gets taught in Sunday school. You'll have got it at school in your religious uh, studies uh, uh, what do you call it, curriculum. Um, you may have got it just from books that you have read. See, many, many Christians and people who don't call themselves Christians have what, what you might call a simplistic faith. And, and the problem with a simplistic faith is a simplistic faith doesn't always work in a complex world. And maybe some of the reasons why we have tensions between what we believe the Bible says and what we see in reality is because we actually take very simplistic ideas that we were taught as children and then we try and apply them to the complex world in which we live and we found them to be we're really wanting. I don't know about you, but um, I've got three kids. And, uh, and I think we tend to teach our children about the Bible like we teach our children about sex, okay? So what we tend to do is we, we tell them little bits, okay? We tell them just a little bit of the truth, uh, in, and, and we try and shield them from the more complex ideas that, uh, that perhaps they will learn as they get older. So, for example, uh, we might tell children that the, bi- the Bible says that the world was created literally in seven days, Okay, we might tell young children that, but in we, we know at some point we're going to have to explain to them that actually scientifically we know that it, the, the world has evolved and that it's actually 13.8 billion years old uh, at our latest estimate. And even that isn't necessarily you know, the fullest understanding of what, what we know about our universe in which we live. We teach them about Noah and the flood. Yeah, and yet we, we kind of leave out the awkward details of human annihilation. Uh, we teach them about Moses in the bulrushes, whilst actually forgetting, even as adults, that that was, came at a time of infanticide, where children were, were murdered. Um, we teach them about the Israelites inheriting a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet we, tell, we forget to tell them that actually it also involved the genocide of a whole people group called the Canaanites. See what I mean? We tend to teach children, and we were taught as children, Half realities. We got a bit of the story, but not all of it. And so it's not a surprise that when uh, children become teenagers, like we've all been, we go, hang on a minute, this doesn't quite fit. That, that feels a bit odd. That feels like awkward to believe that. Like, what does that mean for me? How does it affect my life? And, um, and so many of us struggle to, to really square our simplistic Sunday school beliefs with a complex world. 
Now today what I want to do is, is look at the source of many of those uh, dr most dramatic stories that we see in the Bible and that we tell our kids. And I want to try and put them in some sort of context for you. Um, the source of many of these stories that we're talking about is in the Old Testament. It's the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. Some of you will know that the, the Penta, Pentateuch means five scrolls. And, uh, and the Pentateuch is very old. It's actually derived from the Israelites' uh, Torah, which is, means law. So it, it, effectively, there's these five books which are known as the law to ancient Israelites. And in the Old Testament, they've been put together and called the Pentateuch. Now, the whole of the Pentateuch, if you're not familiar with the first five books of the Bible, reads like a story arc, which begins with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses, with lots of other characters as well, of course, but largely that line of people. And the first thing that we need to understand about the Pentateuch is that we don't quite know who wrote it. All right, now, if, I've ever, if you've ever heard me say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch or Genesis, which is the first book of the Pentateuch, then just know that that's not entirely true, <laughs> partly because we don't entirely know who wrote it. Uh, some scholars think that Moses uh, wrote it. Um, actually, the majority of scholarly opinion now doesn't hold that opinion, uh, but actually thinks that the Pentateuch came about sometime after 539 B.C., Sixth century before Christ. So what happened after 539 BC? Well, the reality is, is that in 539 BC, the Israelites were released from captivity. They'd been exiled in Babylon. And scholars think that the Pentateuch was put together at around about that time. Now, that's not to say that uh, the Pentateuch was all written after 539 BC. There were certainly older writings and oral traditions where stories were passed down from generation to generation. But it was around about that time that they brought it all together. And uh, if you're not familiar with Babylon, it's, what, it's the area of what we would consider now modern-day Iraq. And, um, and what I want to do is just rewind for you 60 years before 539 BC. And what's happened so far is that the 12 tribes of Israel, well, 10 of them have been destroyed. And there's only two left, Judah and Benjamin. And they were, the, the other ten tribes were, were destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And as is the case with, with history, one empire swallows up another empire, and then that empire then gets swallowed up. And in this case, the Assyrian Empire is swallowed up by the Babylonian Empire. And it seems, it's in, it's in about 586 when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and Judah and finally carry off Judah and Benjamin, the remnant of Israel, um, the, the final two tribes, off into exile. Now, it's difficult to comprehend what a traumatic experience being carried off into exile might have looked like for the, uh, the, 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 the men and women from Judah and Benjamin. But I guess we could consider it something like this. It could be like a really powerful nation like, say, China or the USA, much bigger and more powerful than, than the UK, that they destroy the Royal Navy. They sink all the ships of the Royal Navy, including the two big new aircraft carriers we've got on all our submarines, and they destroy our Royal Navy, and then they destroy, the, they destroy all the aeroplanes of the RAF, and then they annihilate the British Army. And then they then capture all of the civilians that are left in the UK, and they carry them off. They forcibly transport them to the middle of a desert somewhere, and, and we're forced to live there. And then, to make 
let's cap it all off really, they throw a few nuclear weapons at the, uh, at the British Isles and they, they nuke the entire country so no one can live there. That might be a metaphor for what happened to Judah and Benjamin. It's an immense traumatic experience. Just imagine that happening. You can't, can you? Because it's just too overwhelming to even begin to comprehend what that might feel like. But this is something like happened to Judah and Benjamin. So, you've got this remnant from Judah and Benjamin who actually represent the larger Israel of nation, two tribes of, of 12. And it's, it's not surprising that what they start to do, because all of their architecture, all of their art, all of their infrastructure, all of their history has been destroyed by the Babylonians. What do they do? They start trying to write it down. They start writing down their history. They start writing down everything that they can remember so that it is not destroyed. You know, it's not hard to imagine the bitterness that the Israelites will have harbored towards the Babylonians. It's not hard to imagine what, uh, what it would have felt like when they looked at their ancient past in order to make sense of their present tragedy. And in this context, scholars think that a group of Israelite uh, teachers of the law and, and, and scholars would have written down and, and pulled together the entire history of Israel. And they would have done that in such a way as to remind everyone who they are. If you like, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, is like Israel's constitution. You know, like a, the United States Constitution, the Declaration uh, of Independence was written down. This is who we are. In the face of the oppressors, that was the British. They wrote down who they are and what they stood for. And that's largely what the Pentateuch is. It is like a, a, a constitution, a declaration about who we are. And it was written down at a time of great oppression and trauma for the nation. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, um, okay, Owen, what's the point of what you're telling me? Why is this important? Well, the context in which the Pentateuch was written down is really, really important because it will bring some clarity to what are very familiar but confusing stories for us. So what I want to do this morning for you is just look through three stories uh, that you'll be very familiar with and just apply the context that I've just told you to those stories. So let's take the seven-day creation to start with. Christians have been trained to think that the earth was created in seven days, despite the overwhelming scientific evidence that that's not true. Now, if Genesis was written during and after the exile in Babylon, it is no surprise to understand that the creation account in Genesis 1 is similar to the Babylonian account of creation, which, not to be confused with Billie Eilish, is called the Enuma Elish. Okay? And the Enuma Elish has got lots and lots of elements of the creation story that we see in the Genesis 1 story. It's like the authors of Genesis 1 took the prevailing view in Babylon of how creation happened, how the gods created humanity, and then adapted it to fit their history. So the stories are similar but different in ways that make the Israelite God appear better and stronger than the Babylonian God. So for example, the Genesis account asserts that God created the world by himself rather than the Babylonian account that said it happened uh, in, with the interaction of many gods. Um, human beings in Genesis are described as God's crowning achievement. 
Um, the, the innate dignity of humanity come, that we have as a society in the West comes from this Genesis account that says human beings were made in the image of God. We get this from the Genesis account. This is the Israelites who are asserting that human beings have immense dignity and are made in the image of God. And that was in direct contrast to the Babylonian gods. In, Babylonian, in the Babylonian creation myth, humans are not made in God's image, but are instead just slaves to the gods. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, the Israelites' experience of being destroyed and sent off into exile made them realize that actually human life was more valuable than perhaps the Babylonians realized. The creation myth in Genesis 1 is, is not written to answer about our curiosity about how the universe came to be. It is not written in code to show us that the Israelites had a basic grasp of the Big Bang or Einstein's theory of relativity. They didn't. No ancient person did at that time. Rather, it was written to tell the Israelites and their God uh, and, uh, that their God, and not the God of other nations, was the chaos tamer, was the one who brought the world into being, was the one who created human beings in God's image and gave them immense dignity and value. When the Babylonians told their stories about angry gods conspiring against each other, the Israelites did not say this to them. Oh, you Babylonians and your silly stories, don't you know that all this talk about your gods is just plain primitive? Don't you know that the stars are actually billions of light years away and that the earth is a, ra- is a ball that revolves around the sun and the universe is expanding at an amazing rate? Really, I mean, can't you guys grasp this? That is not what they did. <laughs> Instead, the Israelites used their ancient view of the universe um, to reveal great truths about who they believe God was and what the value of human, human life was. Um, in, in a sense, they said this, our God, you Babylonians, our God, Yahweh, regardless of what you might think of us, well, God is not weak. You might think of us as weak, you little nation that you destroyed and carried off into exile. Well, don't get any ideas about our God being weak. Oh, no, no, no. Our God is strong. Our God is powerful. Our God is mighty, and we are made in his image. It was like they were stating who they were in the face of great oppression. You know, there is no way that the authors of Genesis 1 could remotely describe the origins of the universe any more than we can currently describe how to develop warp drive to get to Mars in 10 minutes. Now, we might end up doing that. Human beings might end up doing that. But at the moment, we couldn't tell you how that would happen. So, just begs the question, why do some Christians insist that the world was created in seven days? I want to suggest that perhaps that's because they don't understand the context in which Genesis was written. Second story, Adam and Eve. Christians have been trained to believe that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. Despite, as you know and I know, there's no evidence for Adam and Eve being the first human beings. No evidence at all. Even if we ignore evolutionary biology and anthropology that indicate that humans have evolved from other species, there is evidence in Genesis that accounts, uh, in the Genesis accounts rather, that Adam and Eve were not the first humans. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis 4.12. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Tragically, Cain murders Abel and God banishes Cain 
to become, it says, a restless wanderer on the earth. So Cain wanders off and settles in the land of Nod, which some of you may be in right now. <laughs> it's actually, the land of Nod means the land of the wanderer. And, um, and it says in verse 17 that he found a wife there and she gave birth to a son called Enoch. Now, if you've ever read this story to a child, you know what's going to be asked next, don't you? Where did that wife come from? Like, kids are brilliant at kind of spotting inconsistencies in stories. What do you mean he went and got a wife? I thought you just said that Adam and Eve had two children, Adam and Eve were the first human beings. And then you get a wife. How does that work? And these are the sorts of questions that we all kind of just go, can't fix that one. <laughs> just, just kind of push it under the carpet and just forget about it. But you know, um, Genesis 5 says that Adam and Eve had another son called Seth. And after Seth, it says that Adam and Eve had more children. Um, so some people have suggested that Cain would have married one of his sisters. Now, however creepy that might sound, the story doesn't actually suggest that. There is no indication that that is the truth uh, or the reality. And, and, and actually, if you think about it in the order in which it's all written, he would have had to have a lot of sisters for him to find one who had also been banished into the land of the wanderer. And, uh, and it actually says that Cain also built a city, a city full of people. So where did those people come from? <laughs> the reality is we don't quite know, but a simpler explanation is simply that there were other people living outside of the Garden of Eden all along, even if the story doesn't explain it. And if you don't want to kind of, <laughs> if you're kind of going, I don't think that's right, go and read it yourself <laughs> and try and come up with an alternative solution. The reality is, is that we can only deal with what we have. Which makes me wonder whether this story isn't about Adam and Eve being the first human beings. It actually makes me wonder about whether this story is about something else. Maybe this story is actually the story of Israel in prologue, i.e. written retrospectively. See, Adam and Eve are living in a land of abundance. They've been placed in the Garden of Eden, which is a land of abundance. Everything is there that they could wish for. Um, they're given a law to obey, a simple law, just to demonstrate their faithfulness to God. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they do. And what happens? They are exiled from the Garden of Eden. They're exiled. In other words, they're sent away. Israel... Well, Israel, the story of Israel, if you know it, is that they, they, they're, they're emancipated from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they pass through a desert for 40 years, the desert of Sinai, and then they enter the land flown with milk and honey, which we would know uh, now as, the, as Palestine, West Bank, where modern-day Israel is. And they are given a law to obey at Sinai, the law of Moses. But they disobey the law, and what happens to them? In 586, they are exiled from the land. Who's writing this? The people who've been exiled from the land. Maybe, just maybe, the people that wrote this account are identifying this family trait of disobedience and they're saying it's been there from the start. It's been there right from the start. Because if you look at the story of the Pentateuch, it's just a, case, it's a story, and we'll look more at this, it's a story of human beings in being in a covenant with God and then breaking that covenant with God and then, and then God forgiving them and, and, and then God then being a bit disobedient again and God forgiving them. And, and do you, do you recognise that pattern in your own life, let alone in the lives of 
the Israelites. Let's talk about Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Christians have been trained to believe that God wiped humanity out um, apart from one family with a global flood. Um, and, and you know, there isn't a, a, a child in our Western world that hasn't heard of Noah's Ark. You know, it's, it's just one of the most like, fundamental stories of, of our Western society. Children are taught it right from the start. I've probably got dozens of books in my loft about Noah's Ark. And we would have read them to our children. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a good story, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's kind of like animals. Kids love animals. You know, animals on an ark. Um, there's even a rainbow. You'd expect there to be unicorns, to be honest with you. Like, that, that, that would just finish it off. The truth is, is that it's a wonderful story. But it is not ancient Bambi. If you really understand this story, it is not about being like ancient Bambi. It is really not. It is more like an ancient Shaun of the Dead or 28 Days Later because the flood story is a horrific story of annihilation, if that's what it is. Um, the human experiment has failed and apparently there's only one possible solution to God and that's to wipe out humanity. Why evil, the humanity becomes so evil, God has to wipe it out. But we need to remember that this story was written by Israelites living in exile in Babylon. And what we do know is that Babylon lies between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And if you've not been to that area of the world, I'm not surprised, because it's Iraq, it's Kuwait, it's, um, it's the nether regions of Turkey. You know, honestly, I don't expect anyone's been there, right? Has anyone been there? No. It's not possible to go there, it's not particularly safe. But those two rivers are great rivers. Uh, you know, uh, uh, anthropologists would describe the Euphrates and the Tigris Basin as being a center of human evolution, uh, just like the Nile in Egypt and just like the Yellow and the Yangtze rivers in China. Okay? So these are mighty rivers that would have flooded regularly. Um, and indeed, um, archaeologists think that there was a catastrophic flood in that region around about 2900 BC. So... The Israelites writing the story are writing in a context where the Babylonians know what flooding is. They know what catastrophic flooding is. And we don't necessarily know what catastrophic flooding is because we don't live necessarily close to rivers that would catastrophically flood and kill hundreds of people like they did in areas of Belgium and Western Germany only last year. Even now, actually, scientists are saying to us that this would happen, it's more likely to happen in the UK. But this sort of catastrophic flooding happens when you live near mighty rivers and you haven't got flood alleviation schemes. And of course, all catastrophes like those leave us asking the question, how did it happen? How did it happen? Many of us are asking the question, how did the COVID crisis happen? And scientists still don't know how the COVID crisis happened. But... There are other people also asking the question, why did it happen? Why did the COVID crisis happen? And it's not hard to believe that the Babylonians and the Israelites would have been asking the questions, why did the great flood happen or the great floods happen? Well, the Noah's Ark story is very similar. In fact, almost identical to an older Babylonian flood account. And... Um, and what, what I think the Israelites did was they used that account to describe who God is, how their God is different from the Babylonian gods. 
Retrospectively, it seems that the Israelites used the Babylonian flood story to show how Yahweh, who formed order out of chaos, can reverse the process if humans continue to behave in a disorderly fashion. We're not going to try and uh, cancel out that part of the story. It's very hard to understand why they portray God as causing this flood. But nevertheless, they were trying to answer the question, why? And so often when religious people try and answer the question, why catastrophes happen, invariably they put it down to some form of human disobedience, some form of human evil, some form of of human depravity. And and they say that the gods wanted to wipe all of that out, to wipe the slate clean. And so Noah in the Pentateuch is actually interpreted as the new Adam at the dawn of a new creation. So was it a global flood? Probably not. Did the Israelites live in Babylonian exile and wanting to actually explain how the flooding in that area happened and why it happened? Well, they certainly didn't explain how, but they definitely explained why it happened. You would think that uh, the Israelite story would be a positive story after the flood, that with Noah as the new Adam, there would be perhaps the world kind of panning out as God wanted it to be, that uh, Noah's family would start a new chapter of faithfulness and intimacy with Yahweh, but no. After getting out of the ark, what does Noah do? It says Noah dug himself a vineyard, grew a load of grapes, made a load of wine, and then got flat out drunk. And he's, he's, he's collapsed, butt naked, drunk as a skunk, in his tent. And what happens, uh, he's got three sons, one of them discovers him naked in his tent. And instead of just doing what I hope all sons should do to their father if they found them in this position, just like cover him over discreetly and keep it quiet. Note to my sons if you ever find that. <laughs> I'm in that situation, I hope I wouldn't be. But the point is, is that, is that instead of doing that, what does he do? He actually goes and tells his other brothers about it. Come and have a look at this. Look at what he's done. What an idiot. What a fool. How embarrassing. So he humiliates his father. And Noah is furious. And what does Noah do? Well, this son is called Ham. Or actually the pronunciation is Ham. But he, 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 he curses all of his descendants. And interestingly, all of Ham's descendants include pretty much all of the nations who caused the Israelites some trouble in their history. The Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and surprise, surprise, the Babylonians all descended from Ham, who dishonoured Noah. If you needed any more evidence that this history was written retrospectively by Israelites living in exile in Babylon, wanting to make a point, (laughs) then that's it. And there's more, though, because if you look at Genesis 11... The judgment of Yahweh on the city and the Tower of Babel, you're probably familiar with that story, although it's a bit confusing. There's a play on words here, that this is like the ancient city of Babylon. So the Israelites at the time of their captivity and exile in Babylon are saying, you guys, God's always been against you. Look at how Yahweh stood against you and destroyed, and, 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 and destroyed the city of Babel and the Tower of Babel. It's a, it's a big play on words. The Israelites are making a point to their Babylonian captors. There's just three examples, and there are more. If we want to understand the first five books of the Old Testament properly, we need to appreciate the context in which they were written, and that was the Babylonian exile. And please don't kind of just kind of like, kind of just work hard to imagine what the Babylonian exile felt like. 
And then you'll start to understand how angry, bitter, and frustrated the Israelites were towards their captors, towards those that destroyed their friends and their family and their nation. The Israelites suffered a national trauma. They were picking themselves up off the floor. They were piecing together their history and their shattered identity. That's the context of those first five books of the Bible. And we need to read it in that context. Friends, many of us will feel like our faith has been come under question. Our identity as Christians. You see, if we start messing with faith, if we start messing with your identity and your relationship with God, with these questions and even entertaining them, it becomes deeply unsettling. Uh, it, it, it threatens your very identity. I don't know if you've actually felt like that, but it threatens your very identity. And it can feel like a really bad thing. It can feel like a really unhealthy thing. But I want to say to you that actually it's not an unhealthy thing. It's actually a normal part of the human existence. And friends, as we rebuild from our own tragedy, from our own trauma of the COVID uh, pandemic, many of us are picking up our pieces of our history and our identity, and we have the opportunity to reset our identity in God uh, and to, to, to live a new season of fresh hope in God. And some of that means laying down simplistic beliefs that we've learned at school because they just don't help us navigate a complex world. And you know that, uh, and you've lived in, with the tension of that. And some of you are even thinking about giving up your faith in God because of that. And I want to urge you, don't. It's normal for you to think through your faith. It's normal for you to question these things. It's really important. We live at a real privileged time in history when we can interrogate the Bible more accurately and more deeply than we ever have been able to previously. And friends, we don't have to kind of just kind of stuff those awkward stories under the carpet, and even less so teach our kids them. Actually, we get to interpret them, as we've always done as an evangelical church, which is to interpret them in the context in which they were written. And many of those questions, many of those tensions become much clearer and much more able to engage with as a result of understanding the context in which they're written. So... We need to be courageous because it is courageous to look at our faith because the fear is is that we lose our identity, that we lose something absolutely central to who we are. And I want to encourage you, questioning your faith and identity, although it can be like, like you can be frightened of doing it uh, because it's so unsettling, the reality is it is the gateway to deeper spirituality, to a deeper, healthier spirituality. And I want to urge you to, to embrace it. Embrace it. If not for your sake, and do it for your kids. Because for all of us, knowing who we are in God, knowing who we are loved unconditionally by God, that is such a releasing, incredibly empowering experience and knowledge. And don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Engage with these things. Read. Listen. There's so much stuff that we can, we can use to help us understand our story, our identity. I want to encourage you to do that. And I want to encourage you now just to, to just pause for a moment. I just really want to ask the Holy Spirit just to um, connect with our spirits and bring life to our souls. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've given us a brain to reason, a brain to question, uh, an amazing um, history, uh, incredible um, 
talented people to help us understand the context of the Bible. Um, would you help us, Holy Spirit, right now, though, just to connect with the reality of, of your love for us? And I, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit just to come upon you right now where you are. And may the Holy Spirit fill you to over, overflowing. May you know deeply in your heart how loved you are and how precious you are to God and how much dignity you have because God made you in his image. May you know that. May the power of that deeply dwell in your heart. May you enjoy that. May it bring life to you. May it bring hope to you. Spirit of God, thank you that you're here. That you never leave us. Wherever, whenever we can turn our mind to you, you're there. Whenever we can turn our hearts to you, you're there. May the Spirit of God fill you with hope and joy and love.